Hi folks and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. I'm Colin Hunter and today I'm joined by a very good friend, Corson de Riggs. Corson and I have worked very closely together for a number of years and uh, I count a few people in my life who I can just sit down and feel very, very comfortable with and he's one of them. Good close friend, um, but he's got a story and we're going to focus a lot on, on his personal side of his life today. He was during the pandemic, he set up comedians on Zoom. So um, we discovered a while ago uh, that he was a stand-up comic and we found some videos of him, even though his current, that the organization at the time he worked for, they didn't know he was a stand-up comic. So it was fascinating to see that and then to see over the pandemic how the comedians on Zoom started to, to put some really good material out there, funny things that I was able to dial into, but then start to use they're, they're, they're almost a group of people to start different conversations with the agencies involved in a number of the things that were raised, Black Lives Matters, race. And Corsten will talk through that today around those conversations and also about the improvisational comedy and how that's, that plays a part in his life. And it plays a big part in, in what we do at Potential Squared. It's, it crafted our work with the actors and how we bring actors in to develop conversations. So there's a common thread and theme in here. So delighted to welcome Corsten. I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode. Look forward to getting your feedback. I am delighted and honored today to have on this session one of my very, very good friends who worked together for, oh, how many years? It must be five, six years now, Corsten, but... Corsten de Riggs, pleasure to have you here. Just for those who don't know Corsten, then let me tell you a bit about, and this is a this is a bit of my spiel and a bit of the spiel that Corsten's given me about himself. But Corsten for me is, has been in my life one of the, the deepest partnerships I've had in terms of working with somebody, co-delivering for clients. And that's reflected in how he works. But I, I think the key thing is the the drive that Corsten has in his relationships with clients and relationships with consultants and, and people like, like myself to create positive impact. And that's in his work, but also outside his work. Random interests. I always love the story that one of my colleagues, when we were first first met Corsten, was on YouTube and found Corsten's on a stand-up video. So he's got comedy, DIY, collecting stories, real estate, entrepreneurship. So a massive amounts of interest in there. But Corsten's had seven years in innovation, 10 years in sales, and 18 years in leadership development. So he sort of puts me in the shade in terms of what he's been able to do in his life. But I'm delighted to have you on, Corsten, and welcome. Thanks, Colin. You are far too generous in your introduction. And I'll never forget that feeling when uh, (laughs) I was trying to keep that professional face. And you're like, so we found your YouTube videos. And it's like... (laughs) Oh no, which one did they find can really change the course of this conversation. But I love the way that you just embraced it. It's just such a clear sign that when, you know, we work with, with you, it's like, it's not just about the work. You're looking at the whole person and that just made that space so much easier to just think about what cool creative things we can do together to, to bring impact to the clients we're supporting. So thank you. No, pleasure. Pleasure to have you on. And you know, the beer room, uh, Be More Wrong podcast, Corsten, is around around this concept of creating playgrounds and being more wrong in your life. And I, I'd love us to take us down a line today 
around acting, comedy, and improv? Because I'd love to understand a bit about how you did that, how you started up, and we can weave in the other bits in your life and our lives around that. But but the improv piece, a big fan of the use of actors in our business, but comedy and improv. So so tell me a bit about comedians on Zoom, or tell the listeners a bit about comedians on Zoom. Yeah, so comedians on Zoom is one of those pandemic passion projects. That's not a term. Maybe it should be trademarked. I don't know. But <laughs> last April or March, March, April 2020, we just, you know, the world shut down. And earlier that year, I went on a trip with one of the comics. His name's Alex. He's always been someone who is hilarious. And I always wanted to work on a project with him. So we were just hanging out and we're on the beach. And it's like, hey, let's find a way of doing a project this year. And I've been hearing some of that same comments from a few other people who are just funny, like great people to hang out with. And whenever you're with them, it's like, you don't have a script. You just go back and forth on each other. So I was like, when April came around and everything shut down, I invited four people. I was like, let's just get on a Zoom call. We'll record it for an hour, treat it as an experiment. No preparation. Let's just riff. And that was the first episode. And we just laughed so hard and... The cool thing for that moment was none of those people knew each other. Uh, they just trusted me enough to just jump on a Zoom call that I was going to record and, and try and get some humor from. So I spent the weekend editing and then I, I put together a little clip and I put it out. I'm like, let's just see what happens if I share this with you know people on Instagram. And we started to get a lot of people reaching out like, what is this? When did you start it? Wow, like how can I help? And then the next week, I went from having four people on screen to like nine. I'm just getting a lot of interest. And that family's just kind of grown. So we, we swap in and out. We record every week. We, there's stuff that we talk about that's serious as well. So shortly after we got started, the world had an eye-opening on anti-racism, period, right? Not just in America. But that was a global wake-up call. So we had some dialogues on equality as well. Like, you know, Many of us are Black on the show. Many of us care about other social causes. And so we had a couple conversations where even the, uh, the Toronto police decided that they would agree to send a speaker to that. They weren't doing any shows at that time, but they sent a 21-year veteran who came mm. and shared experiences in, in dealing with breaking down racial barriers. And we also invited a human rights lawyer. She's actually brilliant and does all kinds of law, but we asked her to focus on the human rights portion. And in some senses where you think those two audiences would just, you know, destroy each other, we found common ground and we saw that even through the comedy leading into those serious talks, we were able to bring people together. And like, as the show grew, people started doing more sketches. Every now and then we would do a serious topic to let people know that we were staying current on what really mattered in the world. But the rest of the time, it was just improv exploration about what happened in the news that week. And we would get on, we would record... And we would share it back out. So that's Comedians on Zoom. Still running. It's about a year in, which is one of the biggest surprises to me. We're still going. And uh, team's growing. We get some new talent lining up. And it's Comedians on Zoom on YouTube or Instagram. All one word. Amazing. And, you know, I've watched it. And, and one of the things that fascinated me, of course, and about it, like just dipping in a bit further into it, is that the people who I didn't think would title themselves as comedians coming in. So a couple of the people I know who are in there suddenly go, whoa, okay. And it worked. They were funny. They were, were in there. So for a lot of people listening and thinking, you know, oh, I could never do stand-up or improv, how has it worked? How have you been able to, to craft that? So... 
I don't want to take you down the rabbit hole here, Colin, but I think yeah. we're going to have to go down a bit of a rabbit hole. Yeah. One of the things I've always loved, like when we talked about the amount of time I spent in leadership development, is that people are riddled with doubt, always will mm-hmm. second guess themselves. And helping people break out of that mindset was like a substantial portion, actually, almost half of my life at this point, spending time with people and coaching and doing that around projects. So it becomes just part of you. You zero in on really cool qualities about people that you see glimpses of, but you try and encourage them to explore. And so I think there are only two other people who've done stand-up that were a part of the the crew of nine. And other people make, you're just really funny. You're fast. You're quick-witted. Or I noticed that whenever you pipe in, you say these very insightful comments in a serious way. But I wonder what that would be like if this were comedy. And so we just tested it out. And what I ended up doing was just continuing to encourage people individually and trying mm-hmm. to create a safe space for people to try things out. And then people just grew into it. And then you know people got more comfortable putting out tweets that they never used to put out before or sketches that they didn't put out before. And it was great to see that coming from the fact that the team came together and learned to leave it open and you know that yes and factor and just kind of go with the flow. And then offline, you just you spend your time encouraging people, you know? It, it is this, it's almost this, this spooky parallels here. So, you know, the, there's a piece here about leadership. And you talked about, you know, the race issues that we've had over the last year and, and bringing those groups together to have tough conversations, but good conversations and find common ground. So there's almost a, a really serious formal element to that. And then there's the ability to, as you say, to riff and to, and to build connection, but also it's a psychological safety for people to to take a risk and do stuff they've never done before. So it is, it's like a leader running a team. And you know, part of this is about creating development playgrounds for people. So it's been successful for you in that context. Yeah. Yeah. I just I want to come into the the improv because you talked about, you know, inside everybody there's the potential to do that. And maybe tell me a bit about how you got into this and how you got into comedy. And you know, I won't tell which video was YouTube I, I watched or my colleague George at the time watched, but how did you get into it? And and what does it give you? Because some people will be thinking, well, maybe I want to get into this now. How did you start? It wasn't like a class clown per se, but I always had a smart ass remark to say growing up that my parents actually thought I was going to be a lawyer when I was like five. That's what they would call me. They would, you know, joke as I got older, like ever since you were young, you'd always have some kind of comment to make, like it would just hit you. But it wasn't until high school. Oh no, I was actually, let's go further back. It was elementary school. Any public speaking sort of competition that we had to do, I always just told jokes because it was the easiest way to kind of leave the audience feeling a bit more joyful. We always had some great experiences around that. And then I wondered if I can do a little bit more of it in high school. And so I just started practicing like sketches doing, you know, this is pre cell phone video reveal my age here. So getting videography and putting teams together, that was rather expensive. And so it was always like, well, what can we just do live in the moment? And I was first exposed to, I think the Canadian improv games when I was in grade 10, 16 years old. And it was just this community where the same way where schools have competitive sports, believe it or not, they had competitive improv and you go. And it was mind-blowing to me to just see how good people were at this. And I was like, I want to get better. And I would just practice with the team. We had a couple more friends join and we were called the Busta Guts was our team name back then. But we did really well and we formed really tight relationships 
And it was, they're just different than normal friendships because like in improv, everything is raw. Like what you see is directly coming from the person's heart unfiltered. And so it's this really fast way of getting to know each other. And I stayed with it all through high school. We were never like team champs of the world or anything like that, but we had a tight squad and it was incredible the, the way that you learn to handle live conversations when you're put on the spot, even outside of improv. So I saw it more of a life skill. When I got to university and we didn't have that community initially at the University of Waterloo, it was the first club I started in first year where I'd, I'd teach what I learned and you'd bring people together and it just worked. And so I ran that for, I think, two semesters and then just went back into stand-up because that was the thing that I was... The thing I spent the the most time practicing, it was just what I did. I wrote jokes, I wrote music. I remember my first gigs were all, believe it or not, church communities who wanted someone to just be entertaining without offending the crowd. And that being a clean comic back then was something that just drove business for me forever. Like for it just, there was always a request in there. And when I learned that I can stand up a business around it, it, I realized that it was just a great source of income to have as a student and, and beyond. And it, you know, made us some sizable payments to my first car. Like I had no idea that you can stand up a business around it, but that's where it came from. Like just the desire to delight, create these joyful moments and bring out laughter in people is something that I've always admired. And it's those moments where people are laughing. They don't have any pain in those moments you see the joy in their eyes and it's just one of those things that will always bring people together. So growing up and seeing like the way like Eddie Murphy and all these comics out there would just, especially a guy like Robin Williams just on the spot or Jamie yeah. Foxx, just watching in living color and all these shows, you're like, wow, this looks like a lot of fun. And I, I want to be a part of this world. And it feels like the rite of passage is to just keep trying things, mm-hmm. try something live be fearless, uh, like be yourself. Don't, don't like be vulnerable. And it just, it kind of worked, you know, it's a weird way of getting into that part of the story, but I think that's the best way. Like I just kept trying. I started to get better. The impression started to come in from practice because it's not something I was able to ever really do before. And so when I learned that it was something you can practice to get better at, it was just what I did. That's amazing. I always remember in 87, I was in San Francisco working in a, a restaurant and one of the, the chefs, took me to an improv where Mike McShane was there and doing improv, uh, you know, one of the, the best in his class in terms of improv. But what I was always amazed by was their resilience on the stage to bomb for three, four minutes on a sketch not to go well. And then suddenly to have the whole place, you know, rocking, laughing in the background. So yeah. talk to me about the, the, the failure piece of this. You know, when you're up there, the tumbleweed is rolling through, What's the experience like? It's hard to predict sometimes, but I'll tell you my first comedy show in Club 54 out in Burlington as 18. And it was my first time going to an actual club as an amateur and not doing private events. Private events are a safe space when you, you quickly read your crowd, you know what you're dealing with. You don't know what you're going to get in a comedy club. And I started to go down this vein. And I, I believe this till this day. If you were born in the 80s, you grew up with the best TV shows. That's it, right? Like you had the benefit of everything from the 70s and stuff before it was still in culture. So you grew up with the best stuff. So I started to go down that vein really early. Like it was one of my opening lines. And there was a guy in the audience and he heckled me. I was like, oh shit, heckler. I've never really dealt with that before. 
And it's not so much that he was interrupting me. It's what he was saying because he was like, oh, he's just going to talk about all the black shows. Let me guess. Roots, right? Roots. He wasn't a black dude. He was a, he was a white man <laughs> in his middle age, like heckling an 18 year old who was out there for the first time. And so in that moment, this is when I learned that, you know, on one hand, stick to what you know and stick to what you came with because I responded to him and I put him in his place, but I didn't like how I felt doing it. And in that moment, like it kind of changed the energy of my show. I remember I forgot my lines and I pulled out my script because I used to memorize things word for word. And I pulled out my script and I'm like, hey, everybody, just give me a sec. And I put it down on the stool. And I remember I had to read the first line out loud to get back on track. And the audience was gracious. They, they laughed intently after that. But it was my second worst show, I would say. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was just also my first experience. It was just you have to kind of get up and keep going. I never really had hecklers after that. And I actually don't know why. But yeah. I think what I ended up doing was like just quickly finding a way to read the possibilities in the room based on what I was getting from the audience and some of those like initial seconds when you're walking out on the stage, like that first 15 seconds, you test a lot of things and you just Mm -hmm. learn to address, like adapt really quickly. I didn't have any hecklers after that, but I'd say that was my worst show. The one that caught me off guard, I'm sorry, second worst show though. The worst show I had was when I was in front of an audience of people I thought was like a a sure home run because just Mm -hmm. all the common experiences. And it just, it was not the case. Like I remember getting some strong cut eye from a Caribbean grandma in the front row and I'm oh I'm gonna address this because I don't have any more material that is gonna make this work. So I actually just had to lean right into it. And that was the only way I was able to get that audience back on side. Yeah, I'll never forget those first two experiences like that. They were years apart, but probably my two worst <laughs> experiences of bombing on a stage ever. I think it's fascinating. You mentioned a couple of things that resonate to me on not on what you do, but in, you know, that, that bit where you think I've got this, this is an audience, particularly if you've worked with a group of people before and you think they're just going to find me funny or they're going to connect with me and we're going to bond and, and this is going to go fine. And if you, if you're off your game and you haven't prepared and you haven't, you know, you're almost overconfident. It's that moment where, you know, my biggest falls in front of audiences have been where I thought I've got it and then found I haven't. And it's, it's always been in my mind that I've always got to be present in the moment and connected to the audience to do that. The second thing is this about scripting and leadership. How has it helped you in terms of almost releasing that script in your outside comedy piece? How has it helped you in the rest of your work? Because innovation and design thinking is, is, a, is a form of working off script as well. So talk to us about, talk to us about that. And you bring that up in such a clean segue and like the direct answer I have is like a script for me is always like a starting place. Mm. You have to learn to let go of the the script, whatever it is, if you're truly trying to embrace the craft. And another way of phrasing Mm. that is templates are only ever meant to get you started. If you rely on templates, you will always need a template. That's the same thing for sending emails to clients. It's the same thing for doing presentations. What I try and encourage people to do whenever I'm in a position of leadership is to let go of templates and focus on developing reflexes, which really come from active listening. Let go of your own language, like use the client's language if they're giving you important terms. Take the time to ask why, like don't just glance over powerful emotional moments that are happening in the conversation 
And sometimes that means let go of your agenda. If you call someone and you're trying to sell them a workshop and they tell you that they're, you know, they're in a snowstorm and you know, all of a sudden, like just pause and like live in that space for a minute before you move on and like ask them what they have planned for the rest of the day and get a little bit more glimpse into their world. You wouldn't do that if you were on script. And even if you were on a script that had a question like that, you would glance over the next question and you would move on. So I learned like, it's just, it's all about embracing those moments when you are present in, in the presence and having enough trust in the quality of the relationship that you're, you're communicating with to kind of just let go of, I guess, forcefully trying to drive a conversation to a, a scripted outcome and just follow where the, the energy goes in the moment. It's hard to explain, but yeah. And, and what I love about this concept of template in there is that it's almost having a framework or a point of view around what is a, you know, what is a good sales call? What is a, a good act? How do you do that? But once you're in that moment, you've got to have the confidence to be able to, to, to go off script. Yeah. You know? And then you've got to have the connection with the audience, as you say, to lean in to the grandmother is sitting on the, on the front rows. Oh yeah. So it, it, it is that that ability. The interesting bit for me, because we use three C's in here, confidence, conviction, and connection. So I've talked about confidence being the physicality, the vocality to, to project and hold your own. Connection is the adaptability with the audience. The conviction is more about the values piece. So I'm interested in you know, comedians on Zoom going back to that, bringing in the concept of race and everything that's going on there and how how you can do that and have the values and keep and tr- be true to those in the face of comedy. Because I think a lot of comedians are, are afraid of tackling anything to do with that in that space at the moment. So, it's a tough conversation. So, yeah, hope you don't mind me asking. No, that's fine. If I go back to my frame of mind in the moment, March, April, 2020, when everything stopped, like a fire kind of ignited in me. And it wasn't the initial response I was expecting of like, oh shit, we're in a global pandemic running by all the toilet paper. It was, mm-hmm. wait a minute, if the world stops. So there's this movie, it's called Lucky Number Seven. And there's a quote in it, I think it's called the Kansas City Shuffle. And it's something along the lines of when everyone looks left, you go right. Mm-hmm. And I thought back, when else have I felt like this when things were shut down? And it was a pullback to 2008, 2009, where we had the financial crisis, which still had a global impact, but primarily like we were experiencing that in North America. I graduated school at that time and it was really hard to get anything done. Except when I look back at all the companies that were started during that time, WhatsApp, Uber, Instagram, I felt like I missed out big time. And I realized that in that moment of crisis, I should have applied creativity and not leaned into the fear. When the pandemic started, I immediately recognized it as an opportunity. If everyone else stops, this is time to move. What are the things that I've always wanted to do but did not have time or did not perceive to have time to get done? I just was kind of riding off of this life mantra at the time of just finding great people and doing great things together and the rest will kind of just sort itself out. And I saw that across all the projects. So like that was the first part of the conviction was like, Hey, like it's time to move. What is something that you want to move on? And it was comedy. Who are people that I want to bring together that I believe in that I think we can have a great experience together. And that's, you know, how I chose my initial group. And when I saw the chemistry, I was like, this connection is, is powerful. I, I know these people individually, but they're discovering each other. And 
I know it's going to work because of what I know about them, but seeing them come online and connect with each other week after week, it just created a kind of bond that you can't get from a workshop. You can only get from taking risks. So when, again, like when we, and, and racism has been going on a really long time, but I was shocked mm-hmm. to see the world's response. And we had people watching. I'm like, wait a minute. Like we have, we have people's attention right now. We should probably say something about this because I don't feel comfortable standing up and recording jokes tonight. It's just not what I want to do. Yeah. So we opened up our Zoom invite. We sent out a call. We, I think we had about 20 random people join and just they sat there listening to our life stories. And I learned a lot about people I thought I knew and what they were struggling with race or with sexism and or like all of it. And it's like, I didn't know that people struggled that way. And that brought us closer together. Mm. So that kind of conviction at that point was like, this is a group that cares about making people laugh, but it's also a group that cares about justice and then doing the right things and, and then fighting for people who are marginalized. And that's where I saw everyone else's convictions come in and just, it created a, a connection in us that it, it just lasts. Like it is different than any sort of project that had been involved in before. And because of that, it just built all kinds of confidence. We stopped planning questions. We stopped, you know, worrying about how shows might go. And we would just lean into whatever was happening in the moment. But it was those initial raw discussions and and willingness to kind of expose our roots that way that created a bond that, you know, I just haven't, I've worked on a lot of entertainment projects. I haven't seen anything like this. Like I remember when Fresh Prince of Bel-Air went off the air and I was watching the bond that that cast had in the last episode and how powerfully they experienced those relationships. And then again, this year when they did the, the reunion, that bond was still there. And I remember young and I'm like, I was, I see that in sports, but I've always wanted, I always wanted that in entertainment. Being one comedian on stage is fun. Don't get me wrong when you have a group of people who can bounce ideas off of each other and make each other laugh that hard off of raw moments, that that's something else. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I tried to say all the words that you gave me. <laughs> I love that. So I gave you a template and you work with it. Yeah. And you gave me an answer. I think it's, it's fascinating for me because I think there's a piece that a number of people over this year have, have struggled to find a place to be able to talk about what's been going on. Yeah and say the right or wrong things. And I remember I've made a few mistakes this year, you know, saying when COVID happening and I've made an error and I, I felt it was just a, almost a, a harmless comment, you know, talking about, well, I'm doing well and I'm lucky. Yeah. And somebody said, well, thank you. So lucky and got really emotional and quite angry with me about it. But in, in the concept of race and gender, there's this piece here that's just being able to have those raw conversations and, and take it back and explain, you know, understand what people have gone through is educational. So, you know, fair play to you to, to, to bring that up and, and work with it in that space. It's tough. Just wanted to bring us back to leadership in there because you've led this group. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Just, I want to touch on that because that's obviously there's a purpose driven behind it to do it. And when I look at, the eclectic list you gave me to talk about DIY, entrepreneurship, real estate, coaching, innovation. What's the underlying passion as a leader you have underneath that? I, I care a lot about making an impact in this world. I, I don't know anyone that has my name, but I am named after my grandfather. And the only reason why I'm saying that 
is the stories of his impact in his life, the people around him, people still talk about that till this day in Grenada and in Antigua. And some of that generation, if, if I meet them and I, I share my name, like, if, and if they knew him, I get treated very differently right away. His impact in the world seemed to place a responsibility to carry that name with a level of impact. And I don't know where that came from, but it's something that I felt like as a kid, I was the first child born after he died. I never met him, but I heard stories about him and what he did for people. So I just kind of leaned into that. There's also an aspect of just always needing to be resourceful. My mom worked 12 hour shifts as a nurse and everyone in my, you know, my parents, everyone had multiple jobs. Like you had to, you had to hustle and I mean that in in the sense that you have to work really hard. And it was instilled, you have to sometimes work twice as hard to get this to the same level as people who don't look like you. So there's a drive to create impact. There's a drive to be resourceful and use whatever resources you have around you to do something. You know, whether it's like I was selling chocolates as a kid and selling those out and you know, taking the money back to school and realizing, hey, I might be good in sales. Like you take an inventory of what works for you really early. And then what connected me to others was when I started to get questions from people about how the heck I was able to generate income doing comedy as a self-managed person at my age, I started to show people what that looked like. And I, I talked to them in the context of things they were passionate about. And when I saw that as able to help people move from their own passions into like a purpose towards their passions, I realized that that was a skill that was a life skill. And whether I wanted to apply it in, I'm going to go learn how to be a property manager for the first time. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to figure this out. Or I'm going to go learn how to you know, DIY renovations or anything. I'm going to try and do something new every weekend. I'm going to lean into that. I found that whatever project I was in, it was always the same set of skills. Why are we doing this? Does it have a meaningful impact? Can I find great people to work on this with me in a way where it also benefits their career? And can we align under a common vision? And many of you get those things done, money will always show up. And impact is not soon, it's like it's soon to follow. So I think I might be a bit off script here, but it's it's right. I'm hearing impact. I'm hearing hustle and I'm hearing a a great thing in here, which resonates with me, which is build it and they will come. So the, the, you know, the success or the, the, the money will come if you do what you're passionate about and what you believe in and hold true to it, you know, despite the setbacks, but there's hard work in there as well. That's what I forgot Um, to get into, which is, That's the thing. Like, if you are going to ask anything of other people, you need to be prepared to do twice as much as work yourself. Like, you have to model the behavior you're looking for. And I think the thing that was most rewarding for me as a personal skill development when I just look at comedians on Zoom, I I can get on the phone and talk to people. I'm not afraid of talking. I can have a conversation. But facilitating conversations that are uncomfortable, I didn't know I can do that. And I didn't know I'd be able to do that well and, and create that kind of environment to handle those painful discussions. I learned how to run a social channel. I mean, I don't have a crazy amount of followers, but like, I really feel good about the content we put out. I learned how to edit video. I learned how to do some of the graphic design, some of it by hand, some of it through other apps. Like, You just find ways of getting things done. And some of the times of feedback where people are like, you were doing all this behind the scenes work and editing and stuff yourself for how long? I'm like, 
for a good half of the last year until I brought someone else in to help with the video editing just because my other projects picked up. But what I realized is like the team was always like when they showed up, they almost worked twice as hard because they knew how much work I'd have to do behind the scenes to get it done. And it's like, they kind of just instinctively understood that. Like here's someone who's putting their time in, he will edit out most of what he says to make sure that other people have platform and he balances it out. And he does that week after week. And when people see that you're willing to do the level of detail in the work, I think it is easier for people to participate and find ways of helping you along the way. And it's not perfect. There's lots of areas I still need help with in any project I'm on. But I find when you are willing to roll up your sleeves and do the work and, and fight it out over a long period of time, like some of these things that I'm living in the blessings of now, I've been fighting and working my ass off for, for legitimately half my life nothing's overnight. People kind of see you in those moments where you reach a goal you might have before moving on to the next and not realize the kind of hard work it takes to get there. Others, however, have been along and have seen the journey. And in the same way where I'm inspired to get things done, because I've seen how hard people around me have worked to launch all kinds of passion projects over the pandemic, it's just a never-ending cycle. You work hard, your hard work inspires others. Other people's hard work and commitment inspires you. And when those are the people that are surrounding you, you are not going backwards at all. And that's the exciting thing. I love that. I, what I also, you know, the, the bit that I, I could be careful how I say this, but they, what I love about over the last 12 months is that people have started to look into what they're passionate about. But, but also some people have been forced. I mean, we were forced to go virtual. I always swore that I would always be face-to-face as a business for our developments. And suddenly we had to go virtual and we went there. But actually what got me through, which is resonating with your story, is the team around coming in and you know groups of facilitators getting together and sharing best practice, hard work about what, what would work best in, in virtual. But I think a lot of us have started it almost going on the improv side. My first virtual session was definitely improv. Didn't know what really the hell I was doing when I was first doing it. But there's that learning and that's that partnership with the people around you has, has been very successful in there. I wondered if one of the things that we, you know, I have in my head, it's given to me by my COO, but also some other of my mentors is this focus, not sprinkle concept, which is I tend to love bright, shiny new objects, new, new topics, new products, new ways of working, new things in my life. And I'm trying to work on this concept of getting more focus and focusing on one or two things. So if you had to pick one of the, the things that you're working on and say, this is what I am passionate about, this is the one that I would keep above all others, what's what of all the things that you do at the moment would it be? Interesting question. I may not have the perfect answer for it because the way that I've... When you say focus and not sprinkle, I mean, those are powerful lessons to learn. And sooner you learn them, you can be more effective. And you hear people say comments like, write down the top five things you want to do on your, in your life, choose the first one and cross out the rest so they're not distracting yeah. you. Yeah. I never resonated with that. You could tell by the list of things that I gave you that I, I like to have diverse interests. My way of focusing is to set up very automatic systems and triggers to always move something forward. 
Sure. It might take me an extra couple of years, but everything is going to eventually come to a level of fruition in its time. And like I've, I've had content with that, whether that was an investment strategy or a saving strategy towards purchasing a home or you know, chipping away at a project that I knew I'd eventually launch in a couple of years. Like it's, that has been how I've been able to get by. If I were to choose one right now, like it's almost like I have to reconfigure a system that's just been serving me well. Like one of the questions I often get is like, how the hell do you handle so much work? Like your work ethic and like you look rested. I'm like, yeah, like I have personal systems built in to help myself and I have boundaries, but I'm, I'm always working on something to move things forward. And I'm okay with that. I think if I already just do one thing, I, I actually might get bored. But everyone's different, right? Like this is part of what drives me is having an understanding of a little bit of a lot of things so that I'm always a bit connected. And people think, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. I'm like, mm, I would rather aim for a jack of all trades, master of some, like as a yeah. directional goal, like always be learning, always be trying something. And I, I sometimes worry that if I were to just focus on one thing and remove myself from some of the outside influences that I have access to just from what I experiment on, I feel like I'd miss moments to create impact. So I can I thing? maybe not, Yeah, maybe not right now. Uh, but I, you see, I love that answer because there was something you said earlier that for me resonated, which is you've got your personal things that you do in your life to keep your energy and to, to keep you motivated. Another piece of note, you know, I resonate with that's why, People say, so how do you do everything you do? You've written a book, you're right now doing a podcast, you're running a business. But there's something about variety in there, but there's also something about in the playground concept about having a go at things and and testing things out and experimenting with things that's powerful to me. But I think the biggest thing I've always got in my career is a couple of things. One is exercise suddenly came in and starting to do triathlons really helped me in terms of discipline of mind. But meditation was the second bit. So we all have our systems that will help us. And if that's our passion, keep our passion going, but work the systems behind them to keep you in good energy. I love that. Yeah. Very good, sir. So I just, uh, I've got one particular area I want to focus on just towards the end of our conversation. And it's something that I want to link the improv and I want to link purpose around impact and, and the, if you had to, to to now just think about the future and thinking about five years' time, coming back to yourself now and say, what would be the messages from that five years older person to you now in the current environment, the current world? There's always the perseverance aspect, the keep going. But like I have an analog for this. When the pandemic started, I, I I thought years back to 2008, 2009, some of the stuff I wished I had told myself then, I made sure I put into practice now. And I would say at the pace of change that we're seeing in technology, I would say, don't even get comfortable on Zoom. Probably, don't quote me on this, but at the pace things are changing and you think about comments you hear about, you know, Zoom fatigue, like I wouldn't be surprised if in five years or less, you know, most of our meetings were either like real in-person human experiences because you know we've been traumatized by these moments or a blend of like augmented and virtual reality and, and business tools in that space. Like what happens when your flip chart is no longer on a whiteboard on your computer or you know on an analog chart beside you? Well like 
leaning into that sort of possibility and thinking in that space is something that I would say I would always want myself to do. I would ask myself to look back into these moments now and pay attention for those opportunities. I would say there are a lot of horrible things happening in the news, but if directionally all the media is kind of focusing in one direction and what's happening on the other side and get really curious about it and see where you might find some opportunities to either create impact or to help the situation. And so I think most of the advice might be around that and just, you know, permission to, to just recognize that right now, nobody is at their best. Like nobody is. And I think that's okay. But I think after this, if not already, investing time or business resources or or creating business models to help people connect again in human ways or to help people get over the roots or the, the, I don't have the right word for it. Trauma might be excessive, but there's an experience happening globally right now that has taken people so far out of their comfort zone. And in some cases, there's a lot of places that where healing still needs to happen. And there's other places where people have had wild successes. And it's those moments where we still have healing that needs to get addressed. I would love to see more of an acceptance in that. We talk about the mental health crisis, but it's probably more than that. It's probably like a consciousness shift or something. And there's a, there's a deeper connection behind all of it. And I would love to see more conversation about that. And if in five years, the thing that I needed to tell myself was to bring more of that human experience and conversation into everything you do, whether it's humor or when you're sitting in front of a Fortune 500 executive, like just do that and the rest will come. I couldn't think of somebody who could do that better than you do, sir. It's, um, it's been a pleasure. Just remind folks about where they can hear more about, about you and comedians on Zoom. Well, folks, if you're not tired of hearing me talk yet and you still have more in you, then I would go to Comedians on Zoom. That's all one word. You can find it on YouTube or on Instagram. The whole team, everyone also has their own side projects. So click around their profiles and you'll learn some pretty neat things. Often folks are not just one thing. And I love that we can share that all about each other. Sir, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on today talk to everybody and i look forward to welcome you back at some point maybe to talk about when we're out of the pandemic maybe to think about where, whether those those visions of what you think might happen on the human centered side is starting to come to fruition or what we need to do about it colston great pleasure sir thank you thanks colin always amazed this was a great conversation but i'm always amazed about how much i learn more about people just when you get that space and the podcast series has been a great space for me to ask some questions that people already know but find out a bit more and some of Corson's background I didn't know his, his relationship with his father hearing about his father but also some of the things that he believes in strongly in his passions which I had a hint of but I, I got a different view of today so hopefully enjoyed that strong views around Black Lives Matters race but also looking at how we use uh, comedy and improvisational comedy to drive a difference in society Uh, and you know for me it is just the start of how we use those types of mediums to work to give people an immersive chance to make mistakes so and learn and how to have those difficult conversations so Corsten, thank you very much for your time hope you enjoyed it look forward to welcoming you back in another episode of the leadership tales podcast soon